0: This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.kaldorcentre.unsw.edu.au.
1: Welcome, everyone, and good morning or good evening, depending on where you are. Where I am, we have a tradition where we acknowledge the First Nation people on the lands on which we meet. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which I am, which are the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. To me as a migrant woman who came and resettled to this country quite recently, acknowledgement of country is always an indication of the ongoing conversation, indeed maybe a human rights conversation about the rights of the First Nation people that settled these lands. My name is Nyaru Nguyen, I'm a refugee advocate and a practicing lawyer. Well, until January this year, actually, I should remember that I have so far left the law. Um, and I suppose I'm here today because I myself was born and raised in refugee camps. So conversations about refugees and refugee settlements are always uh, feels a bit personal. I'm delighted to welcome you all to the launch of the Oxford Handbook of International Refugee Law which is co-hosted by the Caldo Center for International Refugee Law at the University of New South Wales, the Refugee Studies Center at the University of Oxford, the Center for Fundamental Rights at Harty School in Berlin, and finally, the Peter McCallum Center on Statelessness at the University of Melbourne. The Oxford Handbook of International Refugee Law brings together the scholarship of 78 authors from around the world. Understandably, bringing 78 authors together seems like a large task and it did take a lot of work, but also the drive and the hard work and creativity of three editors. Those are Professor Catherine Costello, Michelle Foster, and Jane McAdams. These three women are leading light in the field of refugee law and are making significant scholarly contribution and mentoring more junior scholars. I must add, it's such a pleasure to be on a panel that is all women, first of all. So thank you for the inspiration. Um, they, today, they will also be joined by the world's foremost international legal scholar, uh, Professor Hilary Charlesworth, a Melbourne Laureate Professor at the University of Melbourne Law School and a distinguished professor at the Australian National University. They will discuss the making of these books, its aims, its themes, and its ambitions. Before I hand over to Professor Charlesworth, let me begin by giving you a little bit of a flavor about the book. Uh, the Oxford handbook of, International Refugee, handbook of International Refugee Law is part of the Oxford University Press, uh, Press Handbook series. Each handbook is an authoritative collection of original research which critically examines the progress and the direction of scholarly debate in a given field, as well as setting the foundation for future, for future research. The handbook we are celebrating tonight is a monumental work of 65 65 chapters. It aims to be global in scope, with chapters covering Africa, Latin America, Asia, Oceania, and the Middle East. The book deals with aspects of refugee laws, which I am personally very familiar with. I was resettled in 2005 with my family from a refugee camp in Kenya. It still exists, you can Google it, it's Kakuma refugee camp but it also looks at things that seems far more remote, such as the accountability of international crimes against refugees. It considered the ethics and the, policy and the politics of international refugee law, the key rights and reality of refugees, and the gap in both laws and implementation. And now it's given me great pleasure to introduce Professor Hilary Childworth to launch the book and to engage in a discussion with the three amazing authors.
2: Many thanks, Miadol, for that wonderful introduction. And I join you in acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose land. I'm sitting. Uh, Well, it's a great honor to help celebrate the arrival of the Oxford Handbook of International Refugee Law into the world. Although I haven't yet got a copy of the handbook in my hands, I can assure you that it's going to be a very weighty tone in many senses. Indeed, I was reflecting that the term handbook is a serious misnomer for the volume. It's clearly not going to be something that you'd lightly carry around with you in one hand, so it won't fit, I don't think, in one hand, or even tucked under one arm. It's well over a 1,000 pages long, and as Niarol has already said, with 65 chapters by 78 authors uh, from all around the globe. And in this sense, the handbook is and foremost, a considerable logistical achievement anyone who's ever edited a book will know that this is one of the most demanding activities requiring a clear vision great energy skillful diplomacy and steely determination many times it seems that it would have been easier to simply write all the contributions by oneself but the three editors here who we have Catherine Postello Michelle Foster and Jane McAdams They seem magically to have flourished on the challenges of such a large undertaking and have masterminded a superb compendium, an engaging guide to the intricacies of international refugee law. And if that's not enough, they've brought it to completion under the cloud of the COVID-19 pandemic. They've they've mentioned to me that the three-way collaboration between them has been one of the delights of their academic lives. And this positive and creative esprit Permeates, I think, the whole volume. The handbook is weighty not only in a physical sense, but also intellectually. It's hard to imagine a better starting place for anyone with an interest in the field of refugee law. So, in the 10 minutes allocated to me, I can only skim the surface of this groundbreaking publication. I've had the chance to dip into the proofs of some of the chapters here and found them all accessible and illuminating. The handbook's coverage is really ambitious. It sets out to be comprehensive and global in scope. Quite a bold claim. It starts with reflections on the scholarly field of international refugee law and then moves to sources of the law. It devotes, Smiadol has has noted, a a very interesting section on regional regimes. Another section on access to protection, the scope of refugee protection, uh, another section on refugee rights and realities, then the end of refugeehood, and finally, a section on accountability for displacement and violation of refugee rights. Well, when you look at the authors, those 78 authors uh, that have contributed this book, they contain the absolute doyens of the field, the celebrated, the most celebrated scholars who are credited with actually forming the whole field, as well as many newer voices. And there are also chapters written by leading practitioners in refugee law, and as well by uh, distinguished practitioners, for example, UN special procedures. I found on my sampling that each contribution has quite a distinct style, but they're all universally economic and elegant. Every chapter I looked at brought me up to speed on the relevant legal issues, but also contained sparkling and surprising insights. I was struck right at the start of the book by the very moving forward by Rez Gardi, and I think it's worth pausing on that. She makes the important challenge to scholars of refugee law that they should more systematically incorporate refugee perspectives into academic research. Acknowledging that, of course, there are wide differences in refugee voices. And his, his, here are her words. She says the call for nothing about us without us is not merely a call to engage with refugees in consultations and research, then to write about us. It is a call to make space for us to use our skills, perspectives, and experiences to contribute to scholarship directly. After all, we, The refugees are the experts of our lives and the issues affecting us and we should be treated as such. The editors uh, acknowledge this methodological and ethical concern and they speak of, and this is a quote from the editor's introduction, the gulf between the worlds of power, legal practice and influence and the refugee experience seems to have widened. So I think that will remain a challenge, but it's great to see it expressed so early on in this book. A striking feature of the handbook is the attention it pays to feminist and gender scholarship. I've noticed that the slew of handbooks on international legal topics that have appeared over the past few years may sometimes contain one chapter on women, for example, and then all the discussion of the situation of women in that field and feminist research is corralled, is segregated there. But in the Oxford Handbook of International Refugee Law, issues of sex and gender are everywhere in discussions of the field as a whole and in specific areas, such as the scope of refugee protection and human trafficking. The editors make the intriguing point in the introduction that the field of international refugee law has become feminized in terms of the scholars working in the field, as well as its central concerns. And we see, at least in Australia, that as soon as a field becomes feminized, it tends to be devalued. So it will be really interesting to see the long-term impact of this trend and whether what, what that will do to the field as a whole. The handbook is not only an invaluable companion for anyone working in the field of refugee law. Its overall tone of constructive criticism also sets out research agendas for the field. So I'm thinking of PhD students who might comb this uh, book and find wonderful suggestions for uh, important gaps in research. I think the companion, the handbook, is a state of the art in describing the law, but it's also imaginative and indeed inspiring in pointing to the limitations of the law. I was struck by a particular passage in the editor's introduction, and this is it. Refugee law is part of a system that enables border violence and other rights violations and that legitimates exclusion, at times racist exclusion. They say we must constantly question what we do and how we do it, and whether our objectivity is in fact deeply partial. Stuck struck me that that's a wonderfully pithy expression of advice that's really valuable for all us legal scholars. So the handbook will be a wonderful guide to traveling the terrain of international refugee law. Well, as long as you have a sturdy trolley to transport it with you. Uh, I recall at a book launch some years ago, uh, Frank Brennan, the Australian lawyer, recalled the words of the late great historian of the Pacific, Professor Greg Denning, who was at Melbourne University. And apparently Greg Denning said, you don't launch a book, you open it. So I'm delighted to declare this handbook, even some of the it, just its proof, open, and I wish it a productive journey in the years ahead. So that's my formal launch, but we now you'll be delighted to hear, we have a chance to hear directly from our three wonderful editors. And I'm going to uh, pose some questions for them, and uh, get their take on various issues that emerge from this great project. I'm going to start with Jane McAdam. Uh, Jane, I'm wondering how would you describe your aims and aspirations for the handbook? And candidly, between us and all our audience, uh, (laughs) to what extent do you feel that
0: they were fulfilled? Well, Killary, thank you so much. For that question and uh, perhaps before I respond I'd first likely like myself to acknowledge the traditional owners of the, the land on which I am the Camaragal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I'd like to thank Nardol for her warm uh, and generous introduction and Hilary really thank you so much for um, your comments about the book. Um, I don't know if you need to have this discussion with us now you've done such a great Job of synthesising um, what we were seeking to do. Thanks to for officially opening or, or launching our book out there into the world. I have to say it's an exciting uh, but also a bit of a strange feeling to see it set sail almost five years to the day since we sent our very first emails pitching the idea to each other. So as we note in the introduction and as you've reflected, our aim was to create a book that didn't just recount the status quo But that also critiqued it and that sought to set the agenda for the next phase of research. We were clear from the start that we didn't want to create a purely doctrinal account of refugee law and nor did we want to develop a you know 101 overview of the subject. From the get-go we wanted the handbook to be a distillation of cutting-edge scholarship and to explore the boundaries of international refugee law, what it actually is. Um, Geographically thematically and even temporally. So geographically, we wanted the handbook to have a global focus, as you've noted, as well as a broad conception of what regional law and practice means, which is why we devoted 10 chapters to specific regions. And I think we'll explore um, that notion a little bit further later on. Thematically, we took a broad view of the relevant law. Obviously, refugee law was in there, um, as you'd imagine, but also human rights law, the role of international humanitarian law, migration law, law of the sea, international criminal law, and so on. And uh, so to sort of understand how they come to bear on uh, the experience and treatment of refugees, but also how they intersect with each other. And we really pushed our authors to rethink conventional characterizations and the meaning of international refugee law. Um, In terms of whether or not refugee law is actually international, so riffing a little on the work of Anthea Roberts, um, who's examined is international law international in her book. But we were also looking at how does international law apply to displacement and mobility that might not be encapsulated by refugee law strictly or conventionally defined. And then temporally, we wanted the handbook to reflect and reflect on the development of the field over time. We also wanted it to stand the test of time while also marking a particular moment in time. And as it turns out, that was the pre-pandemic moment. We were really inspired throughout by our author's willingness to engage with our exhortation to offer critical perspectives and to identify emerging challenges and areas for research. So in that regard, I think we encourage people along the way and everybody stepped up to the mark, and I thank them for that. Our author's generosity of spirit, expertise and insights are apparent throughout the handbook, as you've noted, Hilary, and they're also what made this whole process such a pleasure and a privilege. So I think between us, um, we feel that we did meet a lot of our uh, objectives for the handbook, of course, you know, there are, there are some that perhaps, uh, which we'll talk about a bit later, that uh, we perhaps could have done more on, but at the same time, um, even though this is a, a handbook of uh, close to half a million words, uh, it it is a finite book and there's only so much one can include in it. Thank you, back to you, Hilary.
2: Thanks very much, Jane. So Catherine, now to you in Ireland, uh, I think early early in the morning there. Can you explain the structure? I've, I've just described it very briefly, but I, I was interested in how you came up with that structure and how you actually worked out uh, the thematic focal points in, in the structure of the book.
3: Yeah, thank you, Hilary. So as you, as you mentioned, the handbook has eight parts and in a way they reflect the standard divisions in these Oxford handbooks on international refugee law. Um, we were really keen to have a set of essays that would reflect on the scholarly field. So that's the first part of the handbook. So these are variously historical, ethical and political reflections um, written by Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill, Shayla Benabib, and Nishan Nathwani and um, reflections on the politics of international refugee law and protection from Rebecca Hamlin. Um, And that section also contains various um, uh, reflections from particular normative standpoints, so race, uh, feminism, as you mentioned, um, and other um, particular perspectives. Um, so that was quite a crucial, obviously, sort of section to include. It's uh, kind of self evident that you would need reflections on the field as a whole and that they should be sort of normatively uh, driven and rooted. Um, then, I mean, part two on sources, that's a pretty orthodox section to include in an Oxford handbook, but we tried to do more than the obvious, so we do include, for example, custom as a source of international refugee law, but also institutional sources like UNHCR as a source of international refugee law norms. Um, And then the section uh, three on uh, regions was really important, as Jane mentioned, that idea of really questioning what is international refugee law when it's implemented and understood so differently in different parts of the world. Um, In particular, that many, if not most of the world's refugees um, are hosted in states that haven't ratified the international, the central um, 1951 Refugee Convention, or are in states where they have additional explicit legal obligations to refugees, like the um, African uh, Convention from 1969. So those regional chapters were really crucial. I think the other parts, three, four, and five, um, kind of reflect more the substantive content of the global refugee regime, which is a regime characterized by containment of refugees. So that's why we have so many chapters on responsibility sharing, on access to international protection, um, and on the barriers, really, to mobility for refugees. and then of course it's natural we have a whole section on the content or the scope of refugee protection. So who is a refugee, not only in the narrow sense of the 1951 convention, but also much more widely, I think exploring the the, the breadth of the notion of international protection. Um, and also in that section, in this part three about responsibility sharing and access to protection, I think we have three really fascinating essays when they're looked at side by side looking at and the processes of refugee recognition, so refugee status determination or asylum processes Um, and read side by side, they're a really interesting contribution to the scholarship. So we have a chapter by Bruce Burson, which looks at the history of RSD and questions, what sometimes is viewed as a sharp dichotomy between individual and group-based procedures. We have a chapter contrasting European and inter-American human rights standards and how they influence asylum determinations. Um, and then a, a slightly more iconoclastic um, chapter by Greg Ornall, looking at questions around credibility and evidential assessment, um, and really looking at empirical evidence that notes widespread arbitrariness of these procedures. Um, so those three parts are really sort of, I guess, legal reflections on the global refugee regime as a whole. Um, and then we were also really keen to include that final part that you mentioned about accountability for displacement and refugee rights violations. Which looks at the accountability of international organizations um, and also closes with reflections from Itamar Mann on border crimes as possible crimes against humanity. Um, So really, I think, I mean, in short, there were two sort of driving forces. Uh, One was sort of a doctrinal account of this very broad field of international refugee law, and then also wanting to reflect on the specificities of the legal questions that and the entire global refugee regime, and not simply, as Jane said, sort of international refugee law in a, in a narrow sense. Wonderful. Well, that's that's that's
2: very helpful to know. I, I, I don't know with these handbooks whether you get marching orders from, uh, in this case, Oxford just saying you must stick to this, but uh, I don't know how much guidance you're given in a handbook for
3: organizing in those, or whether you're free to determine structure yourself? I I think we were very free and we did look at the other Oxford handbooks in international law Um, and so I guess there's a there's some topics you one has to cover but I think otherwise the only real constraint was the number of pages that can be in a single book (laughs) which we were really pushing against. Uh, There's a material constraint to do with uh, paper and binding. Good well thanks very much Catherine.
2: So Michelle uh it's it's very striking that the when you look down the list of contributors uh that there are a very uh more women than men authors i think it's 48 out of the 78 authors uh which is unusual very unusual in international law texts or legal texts generally so i'm wondering first of all was this did did you was that a policy decision was it a deliberate decision and uh in any event, how did you go about identifying the authors? It's such a such a wonderful panoply of people at different stages of their careers.
4: Thanks so much, Hilary. Excellent question. And I might begin with the last part, the sort of generally what considerations were relevant to identifying authors. we strove to identify scholars who could fulfill the core aim of the handbook which of course as Jane has explained was to contribute this cutting-edge scholarship that critiqued the state of play rather than just uh, relaying you know doctrinally what the law is but trying to critique it and setting an agenda for the next phase of research and so we undertook a concerted effort to publish not only the very well-established scholars, and as you say, Hilary, we're really fortunate to have the leading lights of refugee law. Um, many who are foundational to the refugee scholarship are in the book, which we're thrilled about. But we're also really clear that we wanted to hear from new and emerging scholars. One way in which this happened was that many of our contributors co-authored with PhD students or junior colleagues, and we were really encouraging of mm-hmm. these. And another important consideration was ensuring that we included scholars from a diverse range of regions. So in our work on regional refugee law, and it's already been noted that we do represent, I think it's up to 10 regions in the book, that we strove to ensure that we represented voices from, not just about, the relevant countries and regions. Another technique in order to avoid replicating the dominant voice in refugee scholarship was to pair some authors with others. So with Authors who represented a different background, whether that be regional, disciplinary or methodological. And I have to say we were really grateful that so many of our authors trusted us enough to embrace the opportunity and challenge of working with new scholarly partners. As has been mentioned several times, we were just so deeply appreciative of our contributors for the collaborative and generous spirit with which they approached the project. But now getting to the heart of your question, Hilary, about the gender imbalance of the authors, and of course one may also add of we three as editors. This is not a deliberate decision, but I think it rather reflects a notable feminisation of this field of study, as you've noted, Hilary, one which has decisively influenced its development. As Adrian Anderson and I reflect on in our chapter on a feminist appraisal of international refugee law, due in large part to feminist advocacy and scholarship, the Refugee Convention now reflects gender concerns. Feminist critique of the original male bias inherent in refugee frameworks, together with the receptiveness of UNHCR, courts, and in some ways, legislatures to these efforts, has undoubtedly resulted in important normative movement. Yet, notwithstanding this, as editors, we fully agree with the observations of Catherine de in her chapter on women in refugee jurisprudence. As she explains, to quote, what began with a huge burst of energy and creativity in the final decade of the 20th century had stalled spectacularly. The handbook makes clear then that the work of feminizing the field is not yet complete. I hope that it doesn't undervalue the field, <laughs> Hilary, um, but it's certainly not complete. What we hope is that this volume will inspire future generations to keep pushing the boundaries on these and so many other issues. over to you
2: Hillary I'm very intrigued by the fact of this um pairing up of authors and suggesting that they write together that's uh uh because many people i think co-authorship can turn into one of the great um either pleasures or disasters of academic life so it it sounds quite a brave thing to do but what you ended up with is clearly Uh, a very I think that adds to the dynamism of the book. Catherine my next question is for you Uh, the introduction uh, of the editors notes that international refugee law is relatively new as a subfield of international law so I'd like can you sort of sketch for us what is this subfield I think Said in the introduction, it's really a 20th century, very much a 20th century creation. And how would you describe the relationship of the subfield to international legal scholarship
3: more broadly? Uh, thanks, Hilary. It, it's definitely a subfield, um, but I hope we've demonstrated or at least um, started from the premise that it's not a silo. Um so I think there are four really um key features of international refugee law as a subfield that hopefully the handbook reflects and we were able to to foster. Um I think firstly it's a really interesting subfield because many of its core norms are really widely domesticated and regionalized. Um so it's it's you know one of those really interesting areas to look at in terms of both this idea of how international is international refugee law because it does take shape very differently in different places um, but also for testing out questions about commitment and compliance and the impact of international law, even in some ways assessing the value of legalization itself. Um, And so I think those themes really permeate the book. Um, I mean, obviously, we have a section called Refugee Rights and Realities that really opens up questions of non-compliance very explicitly. But I think throughout the book, there's this acknowledgement that, you know, what do these legal norms do? What does commitment to them mean? Uh, What is compliance in the context of a, a regime characterized by containment and so on? Um, I think the second interesting and sort of defining feature is, um, um, I suppose, technically, international lawyers, we would call it systemic integration, so that you have um, certain norms and instruments in international refugee law, but they are influenced by other norms. And so international refugee law has become a classic site for studying this. So most notably, and in some ways, Jane is a pioneer, both Jane and Michelle in this scholarship. Um, the interaction between international refugee law and international human rights law is really um, sort of uh, central to understanding international refugee law. And we have a wonderful chapter in the handbook by taking up this topic. But again, it, it recurs throughout, um, but also interactions between international refugee law and IHL, international humanitarian law, which um, Ruby Ziegler engages with. Um, international criminal law and international refugee law are well represented um, across the handbook and also transnational criminal law impact on international refugee law, uh, which one might see as a more sort of problematic interaction and we have chapters on um, the law on smuggling and trafficking by Andrea Schlonhardt and by Catherine Bridick and Vladislava Stoyanova respectively, which set up that problematic. Um, So, I think that's the second defining feature of the scholarly subfield. I think a third issue that is just very acute in this field is also in relation to both the positive and uh, negative role of international organisations. So, we have obviously in international refugee law an international organization that is the guardian of refugee law, UNHCR, um, and in that context has a role in holding states to account. But also, as we know, international organizations are potential violators of rights and the accountability gap is an issue which um, the handbook explores. And indeed, in our introduction, we reflected on the fact that a lot of the seminal scholarship about accountability of international organisations was um, influenced by seeing a UNHCR in the field and also questioning Um, encampment of refugees as a human rights violation, Um, and I think that's very evocative given Nayadal mentioned that she was. um, uh, Born in Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya, Um, and so we build on that scholarship or the authors do in the handbook, so we have contributions looking specifically at UNHCR and a chapter by Jan Klabers that looks at both IOM and UNHCR and the accountability of international organizations more generally. Um, And then fourthly, and finally, I think, and and in in some ways, this is, you know, the biggest issue is the sort of meta question about what international refugee law tells us about the international state system. So I think I was really moved, actually, to hear you read out that quote from our introduction, because I can hear all three of our voices in it. It was genuinely a um, co-written paragraph. And... um, uh, and it, you know, it captures the fact that international refugee law excludes as well as includes, uh, and and it legitimates, I think, as we wrote in the introduction, exclusion that is sometimes racist and violence violence exclusion, um, and of course it uh, links up with massive questions about statehood and sovereignty and uh, extraterritoriality. I mean, these are everyday recurring questions in refugee law. Um, And some authors in the handbook tackle them head on. So I mentioned the ethics chapter by Shayla Ben-Abi nishan Nathwani, uh, which is just a wonderful overview of the um, political theoretical and ethical literature in this field. Um, But it comes through throughout. And and in some ways I feel like, um, you know, these are recurring questions for all international lawyers, but they're bigger questions than international law. They're questions about global justice and coexistence and cooperation. Um, that are not only for lawyers, and hopefully, to the extent that they're relevant to the issues that other authors are discussing, that we've at least acknowledged them where they are pertinent, and in some ways moved some of the ethical discussion forward as well. Yeah, I think you've you've absolutely done
2: that, and I, I was just looking at it, sort of struck by how valuable it's going to be um, for teaching international law more generally. Thanks very much, Catherine. Jane uh okay we're talking about this this subfield of international refugee law from your perspective how has the field changed how has it evolved over time and what do you see as some of its current major challenges thanks Hilary. well i think the
0: field of international refugee law itself can be dated to be about 100 years old if we take the creation of the League of Nations in 1920 as the starting point, which is what Guy Goodwin Gill does in Chapter One of the Handbook. While we might though assume that many of today's protection challenges are new, in fact everything old is new again, Pandemic, pandemics, disasters, famine and poverty as drivers of displacement, were among the early concerns of the League's first High Commissioner for Refugees, Friedhof Nansen. So while the context might have changed in the intervening years, the fundamental issues remain the same, access to safety, safeguarding of fundamental rights, non-return to harm among them. Now of course refugee law has evolved since that time and with its evolution has come a lot of complexity especially as governments have started to craft their own domestic responses and legislative frameworks. The drafters of the Refugee Convention, which celebrates its 70th anniversary this year, would probably not have envisaged the scrutiny that would be given to each word in that instrument, nor some of the reasons for persecution that have come to be recognised as falling within its ambit, such as gender, sexuality and disability explored in chapters by Catherine DeVerne, Jenny Milbank, and Mary Croc, respectively. And perhaps the drafters' greatest surprise would be the fact that refugee protection in practice still remains so deficient in many respects. Of course, in the past 70 years, the landscape has changed, which does pose new challenges. So, as Case Wouters explains, the nature of conflict has been transformed. As Kristen Sandvik explains, the role of technology has burgeoned, and as I explore in one of my chapters, climate change and, the, and disasters pose particular risks of harm to people. The containment policies of states seem to know no bounds, as Thomas Gamaltof Tanson and Nick Tan explore in their chapter, and as Violeta Moreno-Lax and Itamar at uh, discuss in theirs. Beyond new lines of scholarly inquiry and more doctrinal ones, um, there are... As we note in our introduction, there are things such as the relationship between different bodies or strands of international law when it comes to the protection of refugees and other forced migrants. And a recurrent issue throughout the handbook is the lack of effectiveness of many formal commitments in refugee law. Um, We note that even states that accept obligations to protect refugees often don't implement them. One issue that the handbook doesn't address is the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on protection. Um, As I mentioned earlier, that pandemic hit just as we were finalising the manuscript. Of course, as we know, COVID has already had profound implications for the protection of refugees with issues of access, closed borders, restrictions on internal movement, inadequate healthcare and general discrimination among them. As the handbook handbook explores in detail, prior to the pandemic, there were already grave concerns about the rights of refugees and people seeking asylum. So I guess the question is what comes next, especially if the restrictions we've seen during the pandemic become baked in. Back to you, Hilary.
2: That's Thank you. That's, uh, I think, in your introduction, you do have a paragraph on some of the issues that have been raised by the pandemic, but it seems to have actually exacerbated a lot of the issues that you discuss in the book. Uh, thanks very much, Jane. Michelle, now over to you. What about uh, regional refugee law? I love this section of the handbook because it just offered a non-expert in the field this huge explaining how many different regional systems there were. Can you, can you tell us how to sort of understand those in international terms and are there common features across the regions or are they all sui generis? Do they all operate in quite distinct ways?
4: Mm. Well, thanks so much, Hilary. Well, as you say, um, part three of the book has 10 chapters on regional refugee regimes, which I think reflect, as we've been discussing, the handbook's global aspirations and again, our commitment to including regions that are not always represented in treatments of refugee law. But I think this does give rise to the question of, well, how how does one define a region in international law? Um, And there I refer to the jurist Anthony Anghi, who's astutely observed in another Oxford Handbook that, as he says, any attempt to discuss regional international law is confronted by the difficulty that a region may be defined in numerous ways, depending on geographical, political, and ideological criteria. And indeed, this is true of our handbook, as some regional chapters assess parts of the world with really distinctive regional refugee protection regimes. For example, Sharp's chapter on Africa, Fischel de Andrade's on Latin America, and Saudi's on Europe. However, it has to be said, other chapters examine how countries in a particular geographical area engage with international refugee law, even if there's no formal regional approach to be discerned in that region. So in some cases, defining a region is really more about proximity than institutional coherence. For instance, Arakaki and Song's really novel and important contribution compares refugee protection across the diverse states and jurisdictions that comprise East Asia. That encompasses China, Hong Kong, Japan, Korea, Macau and Taiwan. Um, Notably, the regional commonality there is extremely low refugee recognition rate. But several chapters identify intra-regional dynamics that have a profound impact on refugee protection and that we can see across different regions. And in particular, where regional hegemons attempt to deflect or contain refugees elsewhere. So this dynamic, for example, appears in Anker's chapter on North America, which examines Canada, the US and Mexico, and Saudi's chapter on Europe, which includes Turkey. My chapter with Anna Hood on Oceana, which includes Polynesia, Micronesia, Melanesia, Australia and New Zealand, emphasises the role of the regional hegemon Australia, but also, I think, importantly, resistance from weaker states such as Papua New Guinea to Australia's containment practices. To give one example, the Supreme Court of Papua New Guinea ruled in 2016 that the country's detention facilities, which were established at Australia's behest with its direct funding and involvement, violated the constitutional right to personal liberty. I think the regional chapters also reveal various reasons, often historical or geopolitical, why some states and some states in certain regions have chosen to ratify the Refugee Convention and or the protocol, while others have not. So Azagalovas discusses the notion of strategic ratification in the context of Central Asia, while Brunium argues that states in South Asia have felt sidelined ever since the creation of the post-Second World War international refugee regime. Nevertheless, as we noted in our introduction, the institutional authority of UNHCR shouldn't be underestimated. And this has been particularly important in some regions. So as Montauban observes in Southeast Asia, UNHCR's presence is essential as it helps to advocate for refugee protection, especially to underline the importance of non-reformal and the humane treatment of asylum seekers. And it also plays a crucial operational role in many states and regions. Back to you, Hillary.
2: Thanks. Thanks very much, Michelle. And thanks for sort of pointing out uh, that great variety of, of, of chapters that you have. Uh, Catherine, I, I referred to this terribly briefly in my remarks, but I think a really important overview chapter in the first section is uh, concerned with race, refugees and refugee law. So do you agree with the author, with Achume, that international legal scholarship on refugees has a race
3: problem? Um, I I I think what personally I do, but also the experience of um, editing the handbook, unfortunately um, also leads me to say yes, because the particular problem which Professor Tendaya Chume identifies is what she calls racial aphasia. So a tendency to uh, fail to acknowledge, um, not to mind um, interrogate, the racial dimension of um, the global refugee regime. Um, and so her chapter is a really powerful one and I hope that it's widely read and that it is influential. Um, I, I can't really do it the full argument justice but maybe just to, to summarize and so that people are encouraged to read it. Um, she's building on some earlier insights from scholars such as B.S. Chimney, a leading TWALE scholar and international refugee law scholar, but also highlighting that Although the sort of post colonial dimensions of international refugee law have been explored, um, not always the racially post colonial dimensions. And so she identifies the fact that although the Refugee Convention acknowledges that persecution on grounds of race is the basis for refugee protection, um, we don't follow that through and really see even the extent to which that commitment is met in practice and she notes that actually refugee claims on that ground are fairly rare in many places Um, but she also notes that um, access to refugee protection is uh, distributed in a way that appears to have um, a racial dimension to it and often proxies for race are used to exclude so for example in resettlement practices or by using religion as a proxy for race um, and so there are exclusionary practices that appear to be um, racially grounded. Um, and then in terms of the doctrinal work the chapter does, and she, um, drawing on some of her other works, suggests that one of the gaps in international law generally is around xenophobia and xenophobic discrimination and backlash. Um, and she's very clear in trying to distinguish between um, uh, racial discrimination and xenophobic um, impulses. These overlap, but conceptually and analytically, it's important that they're kept separate. Um, and also she invites greater engagement in um, on uh, third, the International Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, which of course is a core international human rights treaty, um, but she urges greater attention to it. Um, In your earlier remarks, Hilary, I was really pleased when you said that we haven't siloed women and that feminist insights um, fizzle throughout the handbook. But I would have to say um, her racial insights do not permeate the handbook. And there aren't that many other references to race. When they occur, they tend to be either to race as the ground explicitly in the 1951 convention, or acknowledgements that patterns of either refugee recognition or refugee rights restrictions might be um, indirectly raci- racially discriminatory um, in some of the more empirical observations. Um, so there's really a challenge. Um, I'm happy to say this is one of the areas where even before the handbook was finished, we were keen to take up this challenge. So um, Michelle and I, with one of the other um, handbook authors, Catherine Riddick, and with professors and I at have try to bring together a network of scholars looking at discriminatory borders and doing more work in this field. Thanks, Catherine.
2: Well, it's great to give that prominence to that chapter, which I absolutely recommend to everybody. I think it's it's extraordinary. Uh, Jane, I I guess this is related, but I'm wondering, uh, what do you think of the challenge that you cite in your introduction uh, The role of refugee voice in refugee law scholarship today, what's the role and how does one work with it ethically and uh, intellectually?
0: Hilary, it's absolutely vital to have the refugee voice or voices, it's obviously not one voice, reflected in scholarship, but for a range of reasons, many of which are systemic. Um, those voices are still far too rarely heard directly. And we acknowledge in the handbook that overall legal scholarship hasn't confronted the challenge of refugee voices head on. We know that scholars from refugee backgrounds are underrepresented in higher education, both as academics and as students, which is, of course, to our collective detriment. And we know, too, that many people who have experienced displacement face barriers in higher education whether that's because of language issues, interruptions to their education because of their displacement, right through to exclusion from educational opportunities because of their legal status, as we've seen here in Australia at at times, um, as well as, of course, blatant discrimination. It can be challenging for refugee scholars to access mentoring networks Um, or other scholarly networks, which is something that uh, many of us are now trying to address quite directly, including, for example, through the Caldor Centre's Peer Mentoring Program for Scholars with Lived Experience of Displacement, which is in a pilot phase at the moment, and initiatives like Carleton University's Local Engagement Refugee Research Network, known as LEARN, to name just two initiatives. As editors, we'd also like to acknowledge Rez Ghadi, who did write the forward to the handbook, as you've mentioned, Hilary. Rez was born in a refugee camp in Pakistan and was eventually resettled with her family to New Zealand. She's now an international lawyer and Harvard University SATA human rights fellow working in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. In the handbook, she writes that in Pakistan, she was denied an education because of her refugee status. In New Zealand, her high school careers advisor told her that she should consider other options because law school would be too difficult for someone like her. People like me, she writes, did not finish school, let alone end up at university. All our lives we are trained to survive. Being a refugee means that our existence is based on trying to survive just another day and to reach safety. That's all we ever dreamed of wanting more than safety and survival seemed ungrateful. Res says that her ambition was to crush all the barriers, stereotypes and assumptions, and to take take control of her life, which she has done uh, to uh, great success. As we note in our introduction, engaging with refugee voices is an ethical imperative, but remains a methodological challenge for legal scholarship in particular, which tends to privilege official sources and interpretations according to a strict hierarchical ordering. Engaging in participatory research methods with refugees, incorporating their voices through archival sources and collaborating with refugee scholars can all help to problematise official accounts and the received wisdom. And I think it's interesting to recall that many of the refugee conventions drafters were themselves refugees able to draw directly on their personal experiences of displacement to inform that central international instrument on protection and Tristan Harley has recently uh, published a paper on that very issue. So I guess you know what does it mean if today those perspectives are omitted from contemporary scholarship from law and from policy making? And Hilary, you you, um, read out before one of uh, the quotes from Reza's forward where she talks about the call for nothing about us without us has to be more than just a call to engage with refugees in consultations uh, and actually to create the space for refugees to use their skills, their perspectives and experiences to
2: contribute directly to scholarship. Right, Jane. Well, I'm, I'm glad you haven't solved all the problems in the world and that you've left. <laughs> the Handbook has left some things to yet achieve. Um, Michelle, uh, and I guess this, this flows nicely, perhaps from, from Jane's answer. What what do you see as the intersection between scholarship and praxis in, in this field?
4: Well, thanks, Hilary. Um, I think one of the notable and relatively unique features of refugee scholarship is this intersection between scholarship and practice. And I think it wasn't even really until we wrote the introduction reflected on the book handbook as a whole that it really struck us the degree to which so many of our authors in the handbook are not only scholars um, but many have worked or continue to work directly in the field with their scholarship and practice mutually informing each other. Now of course I could cite a very lengthy list um, but I'll just highlight a few examples mainly because we are running out of time. But Kropo, for example was the UN Special Rapporteur on the Human Right of Migrants from 2011 to 17. During which time he issued several thematic reports that are relevant to the handbook including on detention, the EU's external borders and the relationship between climate change and migration. Mutterborn was appointed as the first UN independent expert on violence and discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity and has held an array of other UN related roles. Uh, Kalen is the envoy of the chair of the Platform on Disaster Displacement Wooter's analysis in the Handbook of Conflict Refugees is infused with his deep knowledge from UNHCR operations, as is Garlick's expert assessment of the capacity of the Global Compact on Refugees to provide a stronger institutional framework for responsibility sharing. And as has been mentioned earlier, Burson's chapter on the evolution of refugee status determination is enriched by his professional experience as a decision maker for New Zealand's Immigration and Protection Tribunal across the globe many of our listeners tonight will be aware that refugee law clinics have had a demonstrable impact on refugee protection and the development of international refugee law and several of the authors in our handbook founded and or run prestigious and impactful legal clinics scholarship and practice of the contributors i think reflects a common characteristic of refugee law research which has been framed the pursuit of a dual imperative to advance scholarly but also protection objectives simultaneously but Byrne and Gamiltoft Hansen have wrote recently on this, and they observe that the sub-discipline is heavily influenced by international organisations and networks of practitioners that actively take part in and promote particular kinds of scholarly production, with networks comprising overlapping communities of scholars, decision makers, practitioners and representatives of non-government organisations, as this list that I've just outlined reveals. And I think the benefits of such networks are evident, sharing knowledge, experience and expertise and prompting progressive legal developments. However, as we note in our introduction, they do risk creating a feedback loop and sometimes perhaps even an echo chamber. And so I think what we've reflected on is that we must be cautious then that this opportunity to influence doesn't stifle deeper reflection and foundational critique. So that's really the challenge for our field in terms of this relationship between scholarship and practice.
2: Thanks, Michelle, for their very rich remarks. Now, we are running out of time. And uh, so I'm going to keep you perhaps for last questions to a minute each or perhaps even less so we can squeeze everything in. Uh, so what are your hopes for the future of refugee law? Um, and do you feel optimistic about it? So why don't we go well, in the order I can see on my screen, which is, Jane, followed by Katherine and Michelle. Jane, over to you.
0: Thanks, Hilary. Well, look, I think given the talent, commitment and insights provided by each of our 78 authors in the handbook, yes, I do feel very optimistic about the future of refugee law scholarship. Um, Sometimes people say, oh goodness, how, you know, surely there's not more you could write about in your field, uh, since it is sometimes perceived as quite a narrow field, but even I am consistently surprised by the new questions and challenges that arise. So, um, yeah, I think there's a a lot of optimism out there in terms of um, the scholars we have in the next generation coming through. Great.
3: Catherine? Um, yeah, I suppose there's, I mean, there's a lot of deep problems in the global refugee regime. But at the same time, I think law is important uh, and impactful. So understanding the impact of law, I think is is crucially important. And I'm hopeful that the handbook will um, give particularly new scholars, you mentioned doctoral students, um, ideas about ambitious Doctrinal, empirical and normative questions they can explore and refugee advocates and lawyers like Niadol to sort of use it to make productive arguments Um, I think strategic litigation in this field is key as is advocacy and social movements and uh, solidarity movements to challenge refugee containment so. the handbook is even sort of a tiny part in catalyzing some of that activism, both legal and political, then then that will make me um, both very proud and and very hopeful. Thanks Catherine. Michelle?
4: I'll be really brief because I think I can really only agree with everything that Jane and Catherine said, that there is evidence for hope, there's reason to be hopeful. One of our aims was not only to identify new and underexplored areas of research, an obvious one being refugee law and technology, but also to reinvigorate areas that may have been perceived to have been done, such as a gendered analysis of refugee law. And I think our assessment on refugee law's progress on some issues is sobering, yet in so many respects, the handbook highlights just how far the field has evolved and how much creativity, energy and passion has been invested in its development. So I'm optimistic.
2: Wonderful. Well, just if we can squeeze just 30 second answers, um, what topic, I've been intrigued by this, do you most regret not covering? Jane, over to you very quickly. Uh, Well, look, I think
0: um, it's perhaps less a topic than a a methodology and that is really incorporating the voices of those with lived experience. If we were doing this again today, uh, I think that would be much more front and centre than perhaps it was when we started contemplating the handbook five years ago. Thanks, Jane.
3: Catherine. I think similarly, I think um, a little bit more deeper methodological reflection, so in fact related to Jane's point, I think the question of refugee voice is a a methodological challenge and we need empirical sociological or social scientific skills to sort of do justice to it. And I think um, our reflections on the field could have been like a little bit more uh, interdisciplinary or at least a platform for some more methodologically rigorous interdisciplinary reflections. but that may be another book so i think yes
2: you're all so young you've got a long time to do these things all michelle um, all
4: right well it looks like I'm going to have the last word at least as between the three co-editors so I'm going to take a cheekily slightly different approach to answering this question Hilary which is to say that I do share the views of Jane and Catherine on this question I agree there are gaps and issues that could and perhaps should have been included but I have to admit I find it really hard to have regrets in any way about this project Um, this has been one of the most rewarding collaborations of my career and I'm so grateful to have had the experience of working with many established and emerging scholars who were so generous with their knowledge and expertise And Catherine and Jane, you have been the ideal co-editors. Not everyone may know this, but between us, we have five children aged three to 14. And we also did have the global pandemic to contend with, which added to the pressure we all felt in balancing our personal and professional commitments. We pushed and challenged each other and learnt from each other, but it was all on this amazing foundation of support, respect and understanding that was unique and really wonderful.
2: Uh, Well, what a perfect way to finish. I hand over to Niadol now, our very patient chair.
1: Well, thank you all for your attendance. First of all, I'd like to thank Professor Childwood for taking us through that discussion expertly. I'm not going to comment at all on the discussion because I don't think I have the skills and it's been covered sufficiently. Um, So I'm just going to say some thanks and allow all of you to return to your lives. Uh, The first of course is to the Caldo Centre the Refugee Studies Center, the Center for Fundamental Rights, and the Peter McCullen Center for Statelessness. We'd also like to thank Oxford University Press for taking um, the time to publish this handbook and to the 78 authors who all did an amazing work to turn an idea into a reality. And of course, finally, thank you to you all the audience from wherever you're turning in whatever part in the world that you are a part of this conversation, thank you for your time. Please remember to encourage your institutions or your offices to purchase a copy of the book. And um, we also want to remind you guys that there is soft copies online, so you can also purchase it online. Um, The editors have planned a number of other webinars to discuss the content of the books in greater detail. Those will start from next month. For details of this event, please consult the Calder Centre websites to sign up or to sign up for their mailing list. Um I realize we are above time so I'm not going to talk anymore. Just say thank you all for your time. Thank you for having me moderate this. It's been a pleasure getting to hear about this wonderful work. Bye bye.